0: I hope that everyone has been having a, uh, a good week thus far. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like we got a bit of a fake out with fall. It felt like fall a few days ago. It's coming, it's coming. Now it feels like fall in the morning, but not in the afternoon. So uh, my, my, wife, my wife, Leah, jokes about faux fall, that we get faux fall in the South, and it's, we, we've been in faux fall the last few days, but anyway... Glad that you are here this evening as we continue with uh, with the Equip Institute and I'm so excited because for uh, really the remainder of the fall we're going to be doing an overview of the whole Bible. Now I need to go ahead and let you know because it is an overview of the whole Bible. we're not going to talk about even remotely all the things that we could say and in the future we may dig a little bit deeper uh, and in other semesters, you know we're still, praying that the Lord would give us discernment about what to do long term. But uh, we're going to enjoy looking at some of the major recurring themes that we see in different books and when the books were written and and who they were written by whenever we know that and how they're structured. And so very much you might think of it as a 30,000 foot view of each of these books and sections of Scripture uh, to help us better understand some of the details in the story that we spent so much time talking about Last week. Uh, But before we get started with the handout, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And our prayer, not just tonight, but in the coming weeks, is that you would help us to better understand your word, especially. Uh, some of those key themes in different books of the Bible. And Lord, we'll trust that the same Holy Spirit who inspired that word uh, would be with us every step of the way, granting us the help that we need uh, so that we can be good students of the Scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you hopefully have a copy of the handout in front of you. Uh, It might even be hole-punched this week. Uh, It might have three punches or five punches, uh, depending upon when you got it punched, but it's it's got the holes. So, on our handout, as always, we begin with kind of a reminder and an introduction. The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God and His world. This fall, our 12-week study of the Christian story, last week we had a brief introduction to biblical theology, and if you didn't see it, you can uh, go online and look at it. We mentioned last week that uh, on the Taylor's First Baptist website, there's now a page for the Institute that has notes from past week that can be downloaded, has the videos. Uh, I, I told Scott Norman, I've not watched any of them because I don't want to see myself, but I hear that they're up there, and you can go if you've missed it. Uh, but last week we had a brief introduction to biblical theology. This week we're going to start a four-week survey of the Old Testament by talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. So four weeks on the Old Testament, and then we'll do uh, three weeks... I mean, excuse me, four weeks on the Old Testament and three weeks on the New Testament. We also mentioned last week that, uh, that the, the Wednesday night after the Institute officially ends for the fall. We're gonna have a bonus night for anybody who wants to come uh, that's just a what questions do you still have? What do you wanna talk about uh, afterwards? So I'm, I won't have anything in front of me for the most part. It'll just be some open conversation. We probably won't record that. It's not really formally part of it, but just a chance to dig a little bit deeper and be Bereans together and ask questions. I think it'll I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Leah called it stump the professor. That is not what it is. It's us learning together. So that's what we'll that's what we'll do. So let's talk about an introduction to uh, to the Pentateuch. How many of you have heard that word before? Pentateuch. That's most of you. We're going to talk about where that comes from. So the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Though they are each individual books with their own emphases, both the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and we could have even added uh, church history, speak of them as a single literary unit. They've always been treated as kind of one unit. Does that make sense, even though they're different they're different books within it? Uh, as one textbook says, the Pentateuch was the first divinely prompted literary collection acknowledged as Scripture by the Hebrew community. It's first thing written, the first Scriptures, uh, not just in our Bible, but the first Scriptures, the oldest Scriptures. Uh, the ESV study Bible says this, "...the Pentateuch is not simply the beginning of the Bible, it is also the foundation of the Bible. It serves to orient the reader for reading the rest of the biblical storyline." It really is, in many respects, the prologue to all of Scripture. Uh, You can't understand the rest of it if you don't have a working understanding of these first five books. Now, as a group, they go by several different names, and, and all of them are legitimate ways of speaking of these first five books. The Hebrew word is Torah, which means instruction or law. So if we were among our Orthodox Jewish friends, or just our practicing Jewish friends, if they consider themselves to be religious, they would probably call this Torah or law whenever they're referring to the first five books. Uh, So that's, Torah has long been a shorthand uh, to refer to this section. In English Bible translations of the word Torah, the books are often referred to as the law. So sometimes you hear, Uh, These five books are called called the law. Now, that word Torah appears throughout Scripture, but again, it's used often to refer to this literary unit. Since the 2nd century AD, uh, the 200s, actually the late 100s, many Christians have called these books the Pentateuch, which is simply Latin for five books. So nothing deep there. Pentateuch's not a like technical theological term. Uh, it's their way of saying them five books at the start of it. So that's what Pentateuch means. Uh, and then there are Old Testament writers, as well as Jesus and Mark 12, 26, for example, who refer to these books collectively as the book of Moses. So whether you hear Torah, law, Pentateuch, book of Moses, all of them are referring to the same thing. The first five books of the Bible which are both individual books and treated as one literary unit that's meant to be read together. Now that last name, the book of Moses, gets to the matter of authorship. I've not asked you this question yet, but how many of you at some point in college, or maybe if you're young enough to have gone to a Christian private high school, How many of you have had a Bible survey class? Not at church, but the sort of class where you got a grade for sitting in the classroom. So some of you, this is going to be familiar to you. You're you're aware of this conversation. Uh, Strictly speaking, the Pentateuch does not claim a particular author. What I mean by that is in the five books themselves, they don't tell us who wrote it. Does that make sense? So that's not in... The Pentateuch. However, traditionally, both Jews and Christians argue that Moses authored the Pentateuch. Why do they do that if the Pentateuch doesn't tell us who wrote it? Well, the reason is because the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament identify it with Moses. So it's not because of what the Pentateuch says, it's because of what the rest of the Bible says about the Pentateuch. Does that make sense? That's where that idea comes from. Now, critical scholars, and what I mean by that is uh, scholars who would normally not affirm biblical inerrancy and who are more interested in the history behind how we got the Bible than the text itself, those sorts of scholars often argue that the Pentateuch was written over a period of about a thousand years, and kind of at the end of that period the whole thing was attributed to Moses. Some of you might have been taught that depending upon the type of school that you went to. Uh, the type of college that I went to where I took a Bible survey class, uh, the professor was a wonderful man. He did our premarital counseling, but he did not believe the Bible was fully truthful. So this is what I was taught about the authorship of the Pentateuch in college. I didn't believe it, but uh, but it's what I was taught whenever I was in college. Now. While critical scholars also make lots of spurious claims that we don't have time to go into, one thing that they do rightly note in their argument is that at least some of the Pentateuch was clearly written after Moses' death. At the very least, the last chapter where it talks about Moses' death was written after Moses' death. I mean, it's possible it was prophetic, but that's not what even most conservative scholars believe. or it seems unlikely that Moses wrote it, and there are several different moments. Uh, I quote one here from Numbers twelve three, where it says, uh, Moses was the most humble man in the world. I mean, maybe he wrote that, but would he be the most humble man in the world if he wrote that about himself? <laughs> and that sounds like the sort of thing that somebody else would add to, to verify who Moses is and to give him credibility. So, this is how we reconcile those sorts of things with what the Bible says about this being the book of Moses. Most conservative scholars, I don't mean that politically, I mean like Bible believing scholars, believe that Moses is the essential author or the substantial author of the Pentateuch, that he wrote the earliest version of the five books. Are we tracking? He writes writes the first draft, which looks a whole lot like what we have in front of us. However, they concede that later editors added a little bit of material to tie it all together. Those sort of editorial comments about Moses' character or the account of Moses' death was probably added later. So for this reason, when we talk about the inspiration of the Pentateuch, we're referring not just to those original words that Moses wrote in the first draft, but the final form of the book of Moses that we have now, that that's inspired, and that dates at least to the time, it may be older, but it dates to at least the time of the Davidic kingdom about around 1000 BC, which was four to 500 years after the time of Moses. Now, before you're tempted to say, Is that liberal speak? The answer is no, because of this next sentence. The Holy Spirit not only inspired Moses himself, but the later editors who had a hand in finishing the final form. I am not saying they changed anything Moses wrote. I'm not saying they added anything of substance but there does seem to be some evidence that there was minor editorial things that updated the text. Does that make sense? And this is not the only book uh, where this is the case. Next week, when we talk about First and 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles, 1 and 2 Samuel, same thing. Even most of the most conservative scholars say that those books were probably collected and grew over time So that when we talk about the inspiration of it, we don't just mean the first person who wrote the first word. We mean when the final word was finished, that book was inspired and was inspired every step of the way with what contributes to that final form. Does that make sense? So this is not what liberals say where they say, people just went and put that stuff together to make an argument. We think the Holy Spirit was behind every bit of that. And we think that that final form is inerrant and that what we have in our English Bibles reflects that final form in the original languages that it was written. So can you say Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Absolutely. And when I'm preaching, I say that without any equivocation. But in a teaching context like this, I think we can add one layer of nuance and say, yes, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible but there's a little bit in there that was probably added afterwards, and we just believe the same Holy Spirit who inspired Moses, inspired, uh, you know, Moishame or whoever to, uh, to write that last chapter of Deuteronomy and tie up those loose ends and tell us what happened to Moses at the very end. So, any questions about that? That's like the thorniest question in all of the Pentateuch is who really wrote it, but... Uh, But again, Bible-believing Christians, regardless of denomination, would say uh, it is well over 90% Moses, probably more like 95% Moses, other than a little bit of editorial comment here and there in that last chapter of Deuteronomy. Any questions? We tracking? Anybody think I'm a heretic? I mean, not that you would admit here, right? You could tell Pastor Josh if you think I'm a heretic. But, uh, all right. Well, what I want to spend most of our time tonight doing is talking about the books of the Pentateuch. So let's begin with Genesis. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Some of you got that reference. Uh, The name Genesis comes from the Hebrew word for generations, that we find in Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. As we've just said, Moses is the primary author of Genesis. Genesis can be divided into three major sections, and, and this isn't going to surprise any of you uh, for this particular book. Genesis 1-11 through 11 is a section focuses upon God's creation of the world, the creation of the first humans, the origin of sin, a global flood, Since we're not having a lesson on the flood, I put that word global in there just so that you all know, I believe it was a global flood. And ancient kingdoms that predated the Hebrews, most of which were probably gone uh, by the time we get to like the time of David and things like that. It talks about those ancient kingdoms. Genesis 12 through 36 focuses primarily on Abraham and his descendants from whom the Hebrews descended. Now, they also descended from Adam, But for the sake of most of the biblical story, they're Abraham's seed, right? So we get the story of Abraham and his descendants. And then Genesis 37 through 50 focuses upon Joseph and the migration of the Hebrews to Egypt because of the significant famine that hit that whole region, uh, including the region that uh, Abraham's descendants were living in. So that's kind of the big storyline of Genesis, and it's not unusual Uh, In churches like ours, where pastors and teachers teach through the Bible verse by verse, uh, instead of spending, you know, four years going through Genesis to, you know, do Genesis 1 through 11 and then come back a little bit later and do 12 through 36 and then come back a little bit later and do 37 through 50. uh, It lends itself very naturally to being broken up that sort of way. Now, Genesis, we'll spend a little bit more time here tonight than the other books because Genesis serves at least two major purposes. First, it challenges the various creation myths of the ancient world by demonstrating that the one true God created all things by the power of his word and for his glory. Let's stop there for just a minute. We live in a world that has been thoroughly secularized. I don't mean us in this room, but that's the air that we breathe. The default factory setting of an increasing number of people in our culture is that any talk of supernatural origins of the universe is weird. Whether it's this or whether it comes from the Quran or whether it comes from uh, some version of Hinduism, that's weird. And then we default to science or mystery in a secularized world. Nobody did that in the ancient Near East. Everybody believed that a divine being or a group of divine beings created the world. And they all had their rival stories about how that god or those gods created the world. And in the middle of that world where every people group had their version of where the world came from, Genesis drops in and said, this is the true story of where we come from. So Genesis in its original context was absolutely a work of what we would now call apologetics. It wasn't just telling the story to the Hebrews of where the world came from, but it was also challenging all the rival stories that any Hebrew who bumped into people from other cultures would hear. Does that make sense? It's attempting to tell the true story of where the world came from versus all these other stories, some of which are sort of weird and some of which are really weird, if you ever read any of them. Typically, gods battling, killing each other, and then creating the world out of the carcass of a dead god. I'm, I'm not making that up. That's what you find in lots of the ancient world. Killing a dragon and pulling creation out of a dragon. It's just so it's so very different than what we see with this one God who's always been there, who through the power of his word creates everything that's not him. Totally different approach. Second, it serves as the prologue, not only for the Pentateuch, it does, but for the rest of the Old Testament and, before the, and for the entire Bible. Genesis introduces several key figures In redemptive history, about a dozen of them, but four of them stand out as especially important. Adam and Eve, Noah, and Abraham. Again, there's others who are important as well, but those three individuals and their stories and what happened to them and the teachings about them get repeated throughout all of Scripture And the further along we go in Scripture, the better we understand what's going on in Genesis with them. Does that make sense? They're major figures in the storyline of Scripture. Now, Genesis is characterized by lots of themes, but these are what I think are the key themes that we find in Genesis. Remember, we're doing a 30,000 foot view. There is only one God. We think it's weird when we meet people who believe in multiple gods. For most of world history, most people have thought it's weird when they meet somebody who only believes in one God. So there's only one God. The one God created all things that are not God. Everything else that exists, God created. Whether we see it and touch it, or whether it's invisible to our naked eye. God created everything that is not God. God's creation is good. It's not bad. This is very different. Most of the ancient world, they believe that the spiritual stuff is good and the physical stuff is bad and corrupted. Genesis comes right out the gate and says the stuff is good. Not because it's stuff, but because God creates all the stuff. And as a youth minister of mine used to say, God don't make no junk. <laughs> God created it, and it's good because God created it. But, well, we'll get to the but in a minute. Humans are created in God's image and rule creation at, as his representatives. They're put into the garden to rule on his behalf. Adam names the other animals. We, uh, we don't always catch this, but don't make any mistake about it. The garden is the beginning of the kingdom, and Adam is the earthly king, lowercase k, ruling on behalf of the one true king, capital K, God. But the human race is corrupted. And the rest of creation is distorted in various ways because of the sins of the first humans. Now, when we talk about theology in the spring, there are lots of different theories that Christians have to explain why, are, why we are sinners because they were sinners. The theories are less important than the statement, we are sinners because they were sinners. And we may never all agree on how that is the case, But it is the case that all of us are bent and broken and distorted because of the sins of the first humans who represent in some way everyone who comes after them. The consequences of those sins include a number of things. I just mentioned three. Relational separation from God. Where are you? Did God not know where they were? God knew where they were. But him asking that question shows that we have relational separation between humans and God. Sickness and suffering. Am I saying that your sin caused that sickness? No. Jesus says that's not the way we should think of it. Now, sometimes that's the case. But we often don't know that's the case, and we need to be very careful about saying that. Am I saying sickness exists because of sin? Yes, I am, because that's what the Bible says. So I'm not saying you got the flu because you thought that thing you shouldn't have thought, but I'm saying because of sin, we get the flu. Does that make sense? And everything else that makes us sick. And eventually death, both physical death and spiritual death, a result of the fall But there's good news. God is gracious to sinners, offering mercy to those who seek him. And we see this early on in Genesis. God will one day conquer sin completely through a descendant of the first humans. Genesis 3.15, we get that first hint of the gospel where a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. God establishes a covenant with Noah that includes all of creation. It's a creational covenant. Actually restates what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing that uh, God says in his covenant with Noah is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a creational covenant, just like what we see in Genesis. It applies to all people. But then God also establishes a covenant with Abraham that is particular to his descendants but leads to the blessings of all the nations." So these are the major themes that we see in Genesis. I'm not saying there's not other themes, and of course there's lots of themes that we find in every book of the Bible, but I think these are the themes that Genesis in particular is highlighting that set up these recurring themes that we see throughout the Bible. Any questions or thoughts about these themes in Genesis? Genesis is good stuff, folks. It's the beginning of the true story of the whole world. Let's talk about Exodus. One of the all-time best sermon series titles I've ever seen was on the book of Exodus, and the minister called it Exit Strategy. Sometimes I think those sorts of things are corny, but I remember that 20 years later. I thought that was a good one. The name Exodus comes from the Hebrew word for going out or departure. Uh, We find it in Exodus 19.1. Again, Moses is the primary author. And Exodus can be divided into three major sections. The first 18 chapters focus primarily on the oppression of the Israelites and their deliverance from Egypt through the leadership of Moses. So it's kind of Moses' backstory, how Moses becomes Moses and coming out of Egypt. Exodus 19 through 24 is a shorter section right in the middle, and it focuses on the beginning of Israel's wilderness wanderings and God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. We'll say more about that in just a minute. So we have several chapters that kind of take place right there. Uh, we you know Red Sea, Sinai, the beginning of the journey. And then Exodus 25 through 40 focuses upon the construction of the tabernacle where God promises to be present with His chosen people. We talked about this last week, remember? This whole theme we see in Scripture of how God is everywhere, but He's especially in some places. Because He chooses to especially be in some places. And uh, the tabernacle is, after the Garden of Eden, the first place where we can clearly say that even though God is omnipresent and He's everywhere, His presence is especially going to dwell in the tabernacle where his people meet with him. Exodus also introduces Moses, one of the most important figures in redemptive history, another main character to the Bible, if you will, who, uh, who gets introduced. So Exodus is characterized by the following key themes. There is only one God, which we also get in Genesis, but we get a new twist, uh, or a new focus, I should say. He will defeat all his would-be rivals. Now, let me ask you a question. You know that's true, but where does Exodus show us that God is not just the one true God, but he's going to take out every would-be God? Anybody know? Where? The plagues. How so? exactly right. Each of those plagues represented a different Egyptian god. And so it's not just those plagues uh, being different object lessons for Egypt to get it, though it certainly was, that God was taking out his rivals and showing that they were powerless idols because he controls when those locusts come and when they don't. He controls whether that blood is in the water or whether it's not. He controls whether the frogs come or whether they don't. He holds the power over life and death, not those false gods of Egypt. Obviously, the major theme of Exodus, the theme of themes, God delivers his people from bondage. This is such a major theme not just in Exodus, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you could argue that almost every later Old Testament passage that uses words like deliverance or salvation has in mind the Exodus as the paradigm for what that is. Except it's going to get expanded. And it won't just be deliverance from all your earthly oppressions. It'll be a greater deliverance a deliverance from the root of all earthly oppressions, sin and its consequences. But the Exodus becomes a major theme in the Old Testament, and sometimes in the New Testament, but especially in the Old Testament. Related to that, God will lead his people into a promised land of perpetual flourishing. He promises that to Abraham. In Exodus, he begins to make good on that promise, and we'll see... In later books what that looks like. But he's leading them into this promised land where they're going to keep flourishing if, we'll talk about the if in just a minute, God establishes a covenant with Israel that binds them to him as his chosen nation marked by his Torah. We're talking about the Ten Commandments and what happens there. He binds Israel to himself. He'd promised it to Abraham, He delivered them as his people, but he's going to start making them a nation. And they're his people. And the Torah, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but present in other books we're going to talk about in just a minute, the Torah sets the behavioral and worship, and in some cases even legal boundaries of God's earliest people. That are a nation. Does that make sense? And Mount Sinai is where he makes that covenant. Sometimes we call it the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes it's called the covenant at Sinai. doesn't really matter what you call it, but that covenant with Israel happens in Exodus. We also see that God's Torah is a gracious gift that assumes a covenant relationship with his people. Now, I want to camp out here for just a minute. I don't know what you were taught in children's Sunday school. But let me tell you what I was taught in children's Sunday school. I was taught that the law is all about rules and regulations and people trying to earn their salvation in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we have grace. And it's not about rules, it's about relationships. Now, maybe you weren't taught that in children's Sunday school, but how many of you have heard that sort of thing before? We, that's, that's not uncommon to hear, even among Bible-believing Christians. That is not the picture that Exodus gives us or the rest of the Pentateuch. The law is a gift from God that leads to the flourishing of His people, and it's rooted in relationship. If I can use this language, the relationship comes before the rules. And if you don't believe me, look at the first two or three verses of Exodus chapter 20. What does he say? I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of bondage in the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes into the Ten Commandments. But he makes clear, you belong to me. I rescued you by my grace before he starts giving us what we think of when we think of as the law. The rules and regulations are rooted in relationship in Exodus. Disobedience to God's Torah leads to exile. This is mentioned in Exodus it will become a major theme in other parts of the Old Testament, but it's introduced here. And then finally, we referenced this a minute ago, God is uniquely present with his people through the tabernacle. Any questions about the book of Exodus? you are awfully quiet tonight. All right. I'm going to start calling on people next time. No, I won't do it. I won't put you on the spot like that. If you were college students, I'd do it. And then I would laugh as you squirmed. But <laughs> y'all, are, y'all are grown up, so I'm not going to do that.
1: Yeah. So do you ever have what people might interpret? I know that's a very um, you know, specific thing. No, that's
0: a great question. So what do we do for folks who are not here with us tonight, especially as well? Let me repeat it. What do we do with this language like Moses coming down in the, excuse me, the Lord coming down in the cloud and standing with Moses when the consistent witness of the New Testament is that uh, God is a spirit, no man has seen him. And uh, to use a, a big word, but I think a word that many of you are going to be familiar with, Uh, The Old Testament is filled with this sort of anthropomorphic language where human characteristics are attributed to God. What I don't think that means is the cloud took the form of a man and stood there in such a way that Moses sees what appears to be a flesh and blood being that's talking to him. What I think that means is God was really there right by Moses in a pronounced way. Does that make sense? And I think there's lots of examples that we see of this, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and sometimes it's even things like, uh, and God stretched out his hand, and he X, Y, Z. Well, God doesn't have a hand that he stretches out, right? But but we know what that means. What that means is God moved in such a way that everybody there said, God just did that. And so again, we, we find this sort of language throughout. So sometimes we do have folks who read those things. There are cult versions of Christianity that read that stuff and say God was a man or God took the form of a man, but that's not ever what like orthodox Christians have believed. We, we've seen that as figurative language that's meant to emphasize God's at work, to emphasize His presence, to emphasize the nearness of God and His uh, personal relationship with Moses. And, and Exodus is very clear. Moses had a personal relationship with God, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God walks in the cool of the day with uh, with Adam and Eve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Leviticus. Yeah. Expand on the phrase the promised land of perpetual flourish. I'm so glad you asked this question. So all of these promises that we see in Exodus. And, uh, and even hinted at in Genesis with Abraham, but certainly by Exodus, is you get the idea that, uh, that the promised land is a forever sort of promise. But then it takes them forever to get in there, right? And then they lose it a few hundred years. And then some of them come back, but not all of them come back. And so, you know, what, what do we do with that? Now, Christians, there's all kinds of debates Some of us were talking about this last week. There's all kinds of honest debates among Bible-believing Christians about what do we do with that piece of property in that part of the world, and what does that mean today? We're not going to get into those debates right now because this is what all Christians would say. (coughs) That land promise is finally fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Does that make sense? there may be partial fulfillments along the way. But even if that piece of property right now or in the future is a partial fulfillment of that land promise for those people, that's still not the final fulfillment. The final ful- fulfillment, do you know how the, the word... This is really nerdy, I apologize. But the, 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 the word ha in Hebrew, which is translated as land, you know what it's also translated as? earth. And so, it's not just talking about the property in Palestine, though that's obviously what it's talking about in the Pentateuch in terms of its initial fulfillment, right? It's also pointing to what we talked about last week, Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 21 and 22, where the whole earth is once again filled with his glory. And all people who populate that renewed creation are in right relationship with God forever and forever. So there's perpetual promises that are there that are never fulfilled in the Old Testament. I think it's because it's pointing to something greater that's to come. I have a confession. Every once in a while I put tricksy things in there like that, hoping someone's going to ask a question. So thank you, Mr. Massey, for playing along with my, my evil plan tonight with perpetual flourishing. Let's, uh, I didn't plant him, he figured that out all on his own. So, let's, uh, let's talk about Leviticus and let's have more fun in here talking about it than they're having downstairs tonight. <laughs> the, uh, the name Leviticus comes from Levi, uh, the tribe that's identified with the priests. Moses is the primary author. Leviticus can be divided into two main sections. The first 16 chapters focus upon the sacrificial system and proper worship of God. Leviticus 17 through 27 focuses upon God's Torah, the law in particular, and the call to holiness, how these two things are related to each other. Um, In many respects, Leviticus can be interpreted as the direct sequel to Exodus. It, It doesn't just come after it. They almost at times read like a part one and part two, like Luke and Acts read like a part one and part two in the New Testament. Now the tabernacle, now that the tabernacle is complete, Moses is teaching Israel how they are to live before the presence of God because God's uniquely present with them. So how do they live before that presence? That's what Leviticus is about. And when we read Leviticus, we find, again, many themes, and often themes we've already talked about get repeated, but here's four themes that we see that really stand out in Leviticus. Number one, God is holy, and he calls his people to be uh, be holy. Our holiness is rooted in the unchanging character of God. He asks us to pursue what he is. Does that make sense? God is holy. He calls upon his people to be holy. Number two, God's Torah provides divine boundaries for holiness and divine guidance for authentic human flourishing. So it's both about what does holiness look like And there's a sense in which it's the guidelines for living well. Does that make sense? And kind of all that's wrapped up in Leviticus. And sometimes even in the same chapter, and you're reading one thing, and it's, man, that sounds a lot like a boundary rule. And then three verses later, it sounds a lot like, this is what it means to live a life well lived. And it's just kind of all mixed in together uh, throughout Leviticus. Number three, and this is, I think, what we often think about, the role of the sacrificial system in pointing to Israel's need to be purified from sin. Because here's the thing. The law tells us what holiness looks like, but the law doesn't make anyone holy. And People keep sinning. Sometimes they stumble into it, Sometimes it's deliberate, just like sometimes we stumble into it and realize something's sinful, and other times we know exactly what we're doing whenever we sin, because they were just like us. The sacrificial system is there to remind Israel something has to be done about this sin problem, because you're never going to look fully like the Torah life if you will, you're never going to measure up to that because of this sin problem. Sacrificial system tells us the sin problem needs to be taken care of. But even it doesn't fully do it. It's temporary purifications here and there. But we also have right dead in the center of the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. And we get this first big, glorious picture of the idea that atonement turns away God's just wrath against Israel's sin. In fact, it's even strongly implied in Leviticus that the only reason those other sacrifices work, if you will, is because of that atonement that takes place every year, where... On behalf of all who identify with Israel uh, and Israel's God, God's wrath is turned away, leading to the purification of His people. Now, it has to be repeated every year. It's not a forever atonement. It's not a forever sacrifice. They're perpetual sacrifices. It's ongoing atonement. Which is why a major theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus, as our great high priest, offers Himself up as a forever sacrifice and makes the definitive act of atonement. Forever turning away God's wrath from everybody, everybody who identifies with God. Just like we see here in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus is one of the hardest books, in my opinion, to just read through kind of on a daily basis, like it's part of your quiet time. But when you stand over Leviticus and look at the whole thing, it points us directly to the cross. There's so much gospel in Leviticus pointing us down that storyline, telling us what the problem is, Here's temporary ways to address the problem, but all of that gets fulfilled finally and completely in the person and work of Christ. Any questions about Leviticus? Yes, sir.
1: When, when you talked about the, the sacrificial system
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the atonement, let's go pre-Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. What was happening then? I mean, there were
0: sacrifices offered. Yeah, there were definitely... So, I mean, what was happening before Leviticus when it comes to sacrifices and atonement all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis? We see people offering up sacrifices. So there's clearly... And and we know that there were pagan people offering sacrifices. This was not a uniquely Hebrew idea. So they live in a world where they understand in some way uh, they are burning things or dedicating things or cleaning things, and all of those rituals uh, are about uh, making them right with God or the gods. So those ideas are out there. So in a very real sense, we can look at Leviticus as also having an apologetic value and say, saying, this is, w- this is the right way to be reconciled with the right God. I believe whenever we see godly people offering sacrifices before this time where it doesn't give us a lot of details, but we know like Abel had a sacrifice that was accepted and Cain didn't and things like that, whatever Abel was doing anticipated this in a way that whatever Cain was doing did not anticipate this. Does that make sense? But there's just mystery there. We're not sure exactly what they were doing, but it it probably wasn't radically different than some of these things. But God is giving a structure to what's always been there, this recognition that I'm broken, I'm stained, I can't fix myself. But there are certain rituals that remind me of that and remind me of my reliance on God. And, And now there's a way to do that that is clearly God ordained. God may have very, especially, you know, there's all these, all these hints in uh, Genesis, especially that, you know, God is talking with, uh, with these ancient uh, believing people and whatnot. Uh, so, I mean, again, these may be things that they were exactly doing that we just don't know about because it doesn't tell us, but now we know. This is what Israel does so that they're maintaining that right relationship with God
1: about the pagan animal sacrifices it kind of triggered a thought is this another instance of the Lord using an existing practice in the world uh, like how he, like there's laws about slavery God never really endorses slavery as a good but he provides boundaries and structures within Israel for that practice is, is it seem like he's doing the same thing with animal sacrifice like this is all happening here's Here's the
0: boundaries for how that's done. That's a fantastic question. So when it gets to like the sacrificial system, is God taking what's already happening out there and kind of giving them the the God way of doing it? uh, Or is this something that's like clearly coming from him and it's very different than everything else? So I think this is the key difference between the slavery example, which is a great example, and the sacrifice example. The slavery example is going to fall under what is often characterized as civil law. So Torah includes ceremonial law, ritual stuff, civil law, rules and regulations about living well together under God, and uh, civil ceremony, moral law, uh, you know God's unchanging moral commands and whatnot. Things like slavery seem to very clearly be saying they live in a world where people are practicing it And God is saying, uh, here's the most just way to live in light of that. Whereas I would say the sacrifices, based on even what Tom was asking just a minute ago, those go all the way back to Genesis. People are doing that. So what I would say is that God had already given some sort of sacrificial commandments to people he was rightly related to, even during that time period covered in Genesis. And when we see all the pagan sacrifices, those are unbelieving corruptions of whatever was going on early on with people like Cain. Does that make sense? So it's not, hey, here's what's happening in the world and here's the, the right way to do it. Instead, it's God was rightly uh, related to some of those early uh, kind of before the flood figures that were believing There were echoes of that that were still out there, but they were corrupted echoes. So this is a big discussion in scholarly circles. I'll just tell you where I'm coming from on this. Uh, I believe that all of these other religions, no matter what you call them, are ultimately idolatry and that they are corruptions of the original religion, if you will, uh, which is what we see with Adam and Eve after they're repentant, and what we see with, uh, with Abel but not Cain, and what we see with godly individuals who are mentioned before the flood, and, and Noah, that there, there's kind of an ancient, true religion that we might think of as, uh, as pre-Israel's religion, but I think Israel's religion is consistent with it pre-Christian, which is consistent with Israel's religion rightly understood in this ancient religion, and there's even figures in the Old Testament like Melchizedek, who worships God rightly and is not a Jew, or like Job, who worships God rightly and is not a Jew, that I think hints to this idea that there's an, an, there was an ancient way of relating to God pre-flood that was there, and everything that develops that's a false religion is some sort of corruption of that. Does that make sense? I might be wrong about that, but I, I think that's the best way to interpret. Well, I think, um,
1: I mean, going back to Genesis with the, I mean, you would have to think that the first sacrifice was, you know, what God instructed Adam and Eve, you know, at that time. Yeah, that's right. They're asking yeah. for repentance, so that
0: sets the example for how Uh mm-hmm. there is at least, there's at least the hint in the book of Genesis that sin requires death and covering with those animal sacrifices. It's absolutely there. Let's talk about Numbers because we're going to cover two books in about six or eight minutes. The name Numbers is a reference to the census of Israel that we see twice. First four chapters of Numbers and chapter 26. Moses is the primary author. Numbers can be divided into three main sections. Numbers 1 through 10 takes place at Sinai and focuses upon the preparation for the journey into the wilderness. Numbers 11 through 21 takes place in the wilderness and focuses upon Israel's exile and their struggles to remain faithful to God. Numbers 22 through 36 take place in somewhere called the plains of Moab. And focuses upon Israel's conquest of the pagan peoples and their preparation to enter that land of promise. So we've got these three different geographical settings and we divide up numbers based on kind of where they are and what they're doing. Numbers, believe it or not, actually has several key themes besides we count people because people count. Uh, Number one, God's intention to fulfill his land promises to Abraham and Moses. Numbers, they're getting ready to do that. God's intention to multiply his people as he promised to Abraham and Moses. They're growing a lot. And they're counting how many people they have. They are being fruitful and multiplying. They're starting to number as the sands number the seashore. God's presence with his people, even when they sin. God's provision for the needs of his people, sending them that manna in the wilderness, the moon pies and the cheer wine, (laughs) taking care of his people out there like a good God does. God's conquest of pagan nations that worship idols instead of the creator. We'll talk a lot about that next week. But we begin to see it in numbers where they're defeating pagan nations. God's selection of Joshua to take Moses' place as Israel's leader. We're not going to call Joshua a main character in the Old Testament, but he's, a, he's an important supporting character in the Old Testament. And we, uh, he begins to become important in the book of Numbers. Any questions about Numbers? Deuteronomy. The name Deuteronomy means second law since Moses is reminding God's people of God's Torah before they enter into the land that God promised to Israel. Moses is the primary author and Deuteronomy can be divided into four main sections. Moses delivers his first, it's actually several sermons. Moses delivers his first sermon or his first message in Deuteronomy 1 through 4. And he focuses upon recounting God's past mighty deeds and calling Israel to loyalty to him alone. You know, Remember these things I've done, worship and serve me alone. He delivers the second sermon, it's a longer one, in Deuteronomy 4 through 28. They would not have beaten the Methodist to the restaurant on that Sunday. So he delivers a second sermon in Deuteronomy's chapters 4 through 28. He reiterates the role of Torah among his people. It's just, that's the second law part. So just restating and elaborating on many of the same things we see in Leviticus. His third sermon, this one's a devotional, a homily, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 focuses again on God's recent mighty deeds, the things He's done since the book of Exodus, and calls Israel to faithful obedience of Torah. And then the final section is not a sermon. Deuteronomy 31 and 34 covers Moses' final instructions to Israel, kind of his parting words, if you will. We get two different Psalms, not one but two. Moses was a worship leader. Uh, two different Psalms recounting God's faithfulness, and then we get Moses' death and burial, which uh, was probably added later, but still inspired. So Deuteronomy is characterized by the following key themes. God's election of Israel as his chosen people. We're going to start with Deuteronomy seeing more of that God's chosen people language for, uh, for Israel. So, and then the the biblical language is elected. They didn't even know they were running for anything. And he elected them as his chosen people. Uh, The importance of proper worship of God. Major theme in Deuteronomy. And we're going to talk a lot about this next week. God doesn't just say, worship me. He tells them how to worship him. And what is acceptable? Worship under the old covenant. God's faithfulness to Israel in keeping his covenant with Abraham. Again, this is all of Deuteronomy takes place in just a few days before they go into that promised land. So we're seeing, again, God's faithful in keeping that covenant. God's conquest of Israel's pagan enemies because of their idolatry. We'll talk a lot about that next week whenever we talk about the book of Joshua. Israel's need to keep God's covenant with them at Sinai, they're never going to perfectly keep it, but he keeps calling them back to that covenant, to live in light of that covenant, to live in light of Torah, because there are blessings that come from Torah and consequences for disobedience. But remember, we have Leviticus. We have Leviticus, so there's grace, there's purification that can come But he's still always saying, Torah's a blessing. Obey Torah. And when you stray too far, there are consequences for that. And then finally, very fitting with kind of these parting words, the need for Israel to remain faithful once Moses is dead. They have spent many, many decades, what, uh, nearly 80 years that Moses has been their leader. And now he's going to pass from the scene. And so, are they going to keep the faith when Moses isn't there before them anymore? Moses talks a little bit about that there at the end. As always, I have a handful of recommended resources for you. If you just want the sort of edifying book that you can uh, read for 15 minutes a day as part of your quiet time, Christopher writes the Old Testament in seven sentences. If you're saying, I think I'm up to a good college textbook, Hill and Walton, a survey of the Old Testament is a is a fine one. If you say, no, that's not enough of a challenge for me, Nathan, I think I want a seminary textbook, uh, Merrill, Rooker, and Grassanti uh, is a good one. If you're interested in knowing how the Pentateuch is one work, one unified work that's really pointing Israel forward to the Messiah, I would recommend Chen's The Messianic Vision of, uh, of the Pentateuch. He's a former colleague of mine at a different university, but uh, it's a wonderful book. And then if you really just want kind of a, a Bible college type textbook that's focused particularly on the Pentateuch, I would recommend Gordon Wyndham's Exploring the Old Testament, A Guide to the Pentateuch which is a lot like a 300-page version of what we did tonight, where it kind of digs in what are the major themes and figures and who wrote it and when do they write it and things like that. Any questions about the Pentateuch, besides the millions of questions that we all have about the Pentateuch? Yeah.
1: And so some people take the perspective that it's not really meant to be taken literal because it's written as a title, using that kind of...
0: Right. But then it's, you know, other people have a different opinion. Yeah. So are you asking my personal opinion as to whether, whereas, whether Genesis is poetic language or whether it's literal historical language? I think it's a mixture of both. It's my honest answer. So, I mean, it's definitely structured poetically. And I don't, I don't think many people would argue about that, but that doesn't mean that there's not lots of things in Genesis 1, through, Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2 that are literally happening in the way that it's talking about it literally happening. So in the same way that, uh, that we would say the Gospels are uh, not a complete history or biography of Jesus. There's lots of stuff they don't say, but everything they say happened. Uh, or even with Joshua, the sun stands sk- still in the sky. That's poetic language. If the sun stood still in the sky, we'd all be dead. But we know what it means. What it means is it literally, th- something miraculous happened. and That day dragged on so that they could keep fighting, even though, if the, again, if the sun actually stood still in the sky, we'd be toast. So, yeah, I think there's definitely poetic language that's there. But what I don't think that means is that uh, Genesis is all uh, like some sort of allegory. Uh, in Genesis 1 that's just simply saying uh, God's the creator and the Babylonian creator is not the creator or something like that. Any other questions? Hey, thank you for your time tonight. Let's close with a brief word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the Pentateuch. We pray that it would be a good entry point into our study of all the rest of scriptures, just like we believe your Holy Spirit intended. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.